Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 70, 75 of the podcast. Wow, oh my God, 75 episodes already. Uh, yeah, so 75 episodes in, we're not uh, not a new podcast anymore, but uh, for those of you who are first-time uh, listeners, first-time checking out the podcast, basically uh, what we do here on the podcast is just I have an author on to discuss a book of theirs uh, that's been recently published or newly published, uh, something, uh, a book that, uh, you know, on a topic that uh, we think you guys would like to hear a conversation on, and then uh, at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers, uh, you can go ahead and, uh, you know, go and purchase a copy of the book for yourself and uh, give it a read and check it out. So, um, so yeah, so if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. Nathan Lewis, and uh, Mr. Lewis is a fellow at the Center on Wealth and Poverty at the Discovery Institute, and among the world's leading authorities on monetary policy and economic history. His work has appeared in the Financial Times and Forbes, among others, and he publishes the Polaris Letter, a monthly investment newsletter available at newworldeconomics.com. He is the author of The Magic Formula, The Timeless Secret to Economic Health and Prosperity, and Gold, The Once and Future Money, and Gold, The Monetary Polaris, and Gold, The Final Standard, so the Gold Trilogy. And uh, lastly, he is the co-author, along with Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames, of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It, which was published uh, just about a month ago by Encounter Books and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Lewis, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks. So, uh, what made you guys want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? I mean, it's... uh, Obviously, <laughs> a extremely topical book with the way uh, inflation has uh, reared its ugly head as of late. Um, when exactly did you guys uh, come to the thought that, like, hey, you know, we probably, you know, what we really need is a, you know, a, a good primer for people who don't know much about inflation uh, for them to learn about the problem and learn some solutions to it and uh, some advice on how they should handle inflation, that sort of thing. So when did you guys come up with that? Uh, you know, what was the genesis of it and when was the, the genesis of the book? Well, this is something that we have chatted about for a long time. Um, Steve Forbes friends for over, over 10 years. Obviously, I've written four of the books about mostly about monetary economics. And uh, and we kind of come from the supply side camp, Forbes, obviously, Jack Kemp, uh, our side of things. And we have somewhat different views of inflation than you often get from mainstream sources, academics, central banks, and stuff like that. If, and if we if we look we look back on United States government and governments around the world experience inflationary environments such as the 1970s, right, and uh, and the reaction or policy reactions to those in situations, it's pretty bad. Uh, and not just reactions, but the, the analysis that you hear in major media and, and, and from academic economists and so forth. There's clearly n- not a high level of expertise there. So we had something to say on the topic. 
and then and then more recently uh the response to COVID in 2020 central banks around the world essentially a lot of money out of thin air um not very surprisingly this has had some inflationary consequences um and that was definitely motivated us to write a book so you know, we have something to say about this topic like you're not going to hear elsewhere we don't want to repeat the same old stupid mistakes that we've seen governments do over and over in the past. We have we have we have a section about that in the book, including the United States. Um, and also, we have been getting into a very bad habit recently, a very bad trend or tendency in in policy towards this idea of spending boatloads of money. We ran a 15% of GDP deficit in 2020, the largest since World War II federal deficit. And then, and then top of that, you know, all these, all these ambitions in the Green New Deal, whatever. And then essentially expecting the central bank to pick up the tab for this spending extravaganza. Uh, countries can get into very bad situations when they do that. And so we decided we had to go say something about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, before we get to like uh, the the meat of the book itself, I'm always curious uh, authors their uh, routines and how they and how they uh, come about like what their routine is to actually write the book. So is uh, what were how did you tackle the process of writing the book? Because you had two co-authors. Did you? Because I've uh, done the co-author thing before in a book, and uh, basically we did the thing like, all right, well. Um, you take this, this, and this, and I'll take this, this, and this, and then we'll do a first draft, and then we'll we'll uh, share with each other, and then we'll give input on each of our drafts, <laughs> whatever that sort of thing. Uh, did you guys have a? Did you have that sort of uh, system uh, in the way you went about approaching writing it, or was it a different uh, uh, different tact? Uh, we actually had a completely different idea to start with um and we we thought about it we said you know this is a complicated topic and but we want to write a book that wasn't just for you know a kind of book for policy wonks but really reached out to the general american public because we thought that they would probably understand things better than the policy punky times and then we thought <laughs> that they could understand these things and, and, and these in these then these uh ideas should be expressed in simple terms mm-hmm. Um, and we, and Forbes and Ames had written a number of books, to collaborate a number of books together together in the past. And one of them they did was sort of done in a Q and A format, a sort of a dialogue format. Once again, because we thought that was a way to simplify topics. So we were actually going to do this book in a dialogue format. We were actually going to do it by uh, literally having like a podcast and recording it and transcribing it and, and using that as the basis. For writing the book, it's not a bad idea. Um, all of that, yeah, it's not a bad idea. Uh, we actually did it. We and we had interviews, and we had and we had transcriptions, and it didn't actually work out that way, obviously. <laughs> uh, but but one of the interesting things that happened is we sat in a room and we you know we, we were just recording. It wasn't live or anything, of course. It, uh, so we just ended up talking about these topics, and as we talked about it, because we're certainly Forbes and I consider ourselves fairly sophisticated about these topics, and and I would, he would say something, and I would bring something up. He remember that that time back in '86 when so and so said this, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I do. You know, that's an interesting point. And then he then, you know, he would react on something, and, and it was really interesting. We thought that it was going to be such an easy book because I had written through four books about monetary sure. economics already, right? And and Forbes had read them, 
and he's written about this many times himself. So we thought that it was going to be kind of easy, but as we as we started talking about it, we realized all these funny layers and issues that came up, and that was really interesting. Um, and then we had decided we had to kind of these are and they're fairly subtle. Uh, you know, there was this string sort of theme and economic theory that's an error or something. <laughs> and then Elizabeth, uh, who has collaborated with Forbes on a number of books. It served definitely an important role in in getting it to into into plain language. There there there'd be some things where we would be talking about something, and she just wouldn't get it. Now now, now <laughs> you know she, she and she's been she's been familiar with this stuff for years. Yeah, her talk talk about it. And if she like if Elizabeth doesn't get it, then no one's going to get it. So we're going to have to explain it to Elizabeth. <laughs> and, and then and then in the process, we've kind of like, you know, developed the phrases and the examples that we thought were effective. And then, then and then she sort of boiled it down. It's like, you know what? Because she has magazine experience and so forth. Well, I, now I get it. And so she had to kind of try to boil it down into something that someone who'd never come across this topic before would feel a natural connection to. And so mm-hmm. that was. So it, 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 it was, we, we didn't just, you know, this is your chapter, not your chapter, kind of do things that way. And there, was an, there was an interesting process of discussion and collaboration that produced uh, a book. And, and the feedback has been pretty good. People have felt like, I think, that it has achieved what we hoped that it might, that it might achieve. Yeah. Um, and so we're pretty happy about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, enough about process and all that stuff. Let's get to the actual topic at hand, which is inflation. So, um, I guess first question, or you know, <laughs> probably the first thing you should do, um, tell everybody what inflation is and uh, what inflation isn't, because there's a lot of uh, uh, misconceptions about what uh, <laughs> what constitutes inflation. Right. Um, this word inflation kind of gets tossed around willy nilly. Uh, and it's just become a big grab bag or stew pot with all kinds of different ideas thrown into it. And this is not just general speech, but even among economists. Uh, you know, one, at one moment inflation refers to monetary topics, and the next moment it refers to the change in CPI, even you know, among PhD types. And and the outcome of this, this reflects a certain like fuzzy thinking in general, and the outcome has been fuzzy responses. And so we, we decided that we had to start by breaking down in a sort of analytical way uh, two, two basic main categories of what people refer to when, when they use this word inflation. And we we said that there are non-monetary factors, which is basically supply and demand, and it's not very hard to understand. We have we actually have quite a lot of that going on right now. We have all kinds of weird shortages and supply chain issues, which really are happening and really are driving up prices. Uh, one of them being the most obvious to me is is new and used car pricing. Um, new cars are a shortage. Used cars have had extraordinary rise in price as a result. And we could just see the dealer's lots are empty. And what's up with that, right? When's the last time in your lifetime car dealer's lots have ever been empty? And certainly for months and months and now they end. So something funny is going on there. And so you can't just blame the central bank, right? Oh, it's it's just the Fed, right? No, huh. something's going on. And it's not just used cars. It's many, many things, as we know. 
and that is actually adding uh, probably more than half of, of the measured rise in the CPI, or roughly about half, is probably due to those non-monetary issues. And they're real, and they're in the CPI. And then there are monetary issues which have nothing to do with supply and demand, nothing to do with oil factories. It's just the value of the currency. Uh, it's just the mismanagement of the currency by central banks. And basically, it's pretty easy to understand if you simply as a decline in currency value. Well, we have floating fiat currencies that go up and down in value, and sometimes they go down in value, and they stay down. And it's pretty easy to understand hypothetically if your currency's value falls by 50%, then over time, there's a there's an adjustment process by which prices double essentially to compensate for that change in the value of the currency. And this is and, and the example we use from the book is the Mexican peso. The Mexican peso goes from five to the dollar to ten to the dollar. That's what we mean. That's when we say decline in currency value. That's what we mean. Well, mm -hmm. you know that that basically happened to the dollar and the euro and the other major currencies as a as a consequence of. the response to COVID and the central banks being very aggressive with, uh, you know, monetary expansion. Yeah. Uh, so historically, um, the things that are causing inflation today, are they the same sorts of things that caused inflation, you know, throughout the, the history of, <laughs> of currency of, of money? Yes. I, there, there have been, uh, if there have been non-monetary types types of inflationary events uh, many times in history, typically mm -hmm. during wartime. Typically, prices rise a lot during wartime. We saw that mm -hmm. in World War One. Uh, we saw that in World War Two in the United States. Not really monetary in nature, um, and it can go the other way as well. If there's a terrible recession like the Great Depression, maybe prices will fall. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are monetary factors, and this has been around forever. This has been around as, for as long as governments have been reducing the debasing coinage, reducing the amount of gold and silver in the coins, which has been going back to the 7th century BC. <laughs> and, if, and in the old days, they would have a coin, a silver coin, uh, the British silver penny. Henry VIII reduced the amount of silver in the over a penny to one third of what it used to be, and guess what? Prices tripled. Sure. <laughs> in Britain, in England, in the 15th century, 15th, I think it was 15th. Anyway, or 16th century. As so, um, so that has been going on a long time, but we don't do it that way anymore. We have currencies that are they're not made of silver at all anymore. They float in value, and the same basic process occurs. In the 1970s, for example, I estimate that the value of the dollar fell by 90 percent. So. The value of the dollar in the eighth was one tenth of what it was worth in the sixties, and that was, and the adjustment process of the economy that took place as a consequence of that is what caused the inflation of the nineteen seventies. Gotcha. Okay, so uh, but the other thing is too, um, you know, we talk about like the Fed, uh, you know, printing money and all that, but a large monetary supply doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be inflation, correct? Yes, we and that's that's a, that is a problem today because I just I just mentioned the value of the currency and you, mm -hmm. I think people understand this very intuitively because they see they have experience they've been to Mexico and yeah. see the prices going up, um, but you never hear about this you never hear people talk about it. it's all about you know M two is blah 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 and and you know money chasing goods and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, yes, increasing the supply of the currency may lead to a decline in its value, and it has recently. Mm -hmm. 
but it can come across, can come about from anything that will produce the result of a currency value. And one thing that happened in the 70s, um, for example, is there wasn't really very much money creation in the 1970s. There was some. The, the rate of monetary growth in the 70s was about the same as the 60s. But mm -hmm. in the 60s, we're on the gold standard. In the 70s, the currency value fell by 90%. So, so uh, the, the, way in which, the way in which this decline in currency value comes about can be a lot more subtle and complicated than what people often suggest. Right. So uh, we hear from a lot of economists, <clears throat> excuse me, that, uh, well, uh, low levels of inflation, you know, 2% a year, something like that. That's that's fine. That's good. That's actually a good thing, uh, this inflation. Um, <laughs> uh, why do so many economists think that and why are they wrong? Why? Are all degrees of monetary inflation bad? Well, there's the there's this consumer price index, and consumer price index may, as I just mentioned, may go up and down for non-monetary reasons or mm -hmm. for monetary reasons. And oftentimes, just a plain old healthy economy will have a modest rise in CPI just from getting wealthy, not monetary. And so, in, in fact, economic prosperity is associated with modestly positive CPI numbers very often mm -hmm. might not be but that's what we often see um, and kind of kind of related to that kind of inspired by that you could say there grew to be beginning with Paul Samuelson in the 1940s this idea that we should achieve this basically by steady you know depreciation of the currency value which is completely different right mm -hmm. now there's this idea that that the the goal and the job of of a central banker should be to engineer sort of a gentle uh, inflationary push to keep the economy out of trouble or something like that. This kind of like constant sugar high, and and the consequence of that is is it's is a gradual steady decline in the value of the currency, um, which is exactly what we've seen in the floating fiat currency system. And so the result is that today. Uh, in the last 50 years, there's never been a central banker in favor of inflation. There's never been a central banker that just gives, goes up and behind a podium and says, you know what, I want to make the value of your currency worth much less in the future than it's worth today. No one ever says that. But nevertheless, during this period, I, I estimate the value of the U.S. dollar today is actually one-fiftieth of what it was worth in the 1960s. We actually have a two-cent dollar. And this, this, this theory, this policy of trying to engineer it, constant gentle de depreciation of the currency value which is in the textbooks in the academic textbooks has something to do about with that yeah well 150th in value that's wonderful that's <laughs> that's good news and <laughs> thanks for uh making everybody feel cheery <laughs> but uh i mean i think one thing um you know you write in the book and i think people are probably already familiar with this already that inflation uh, acts pretty much like a, a regressive stealth tax, you know, uh, basically, um, you're just getting, uh, uh, instead of the government taking, you're just, you know, all, all that money, extra money you're having to spend, uh, at the gas pump or at the grocery store or wherever, because prices rise because, uh, you know, through, for all goods and services in the, in the nation. But, uh, 
so I think people are familiar with that, but it, <clears throat> inflation is also an enabler of debt. So how uh, how so? Well, yes, there's there's kind of a, a long, long history. There's there's a number of, and I'm getting a little subtle here, but yeah, no problem. There's a number of funny there's a number of funny ideas surrounding that. Um, for many, many, literally thousands of years, I just I just mentioned governments have been doing this since, mm. since at least the seventh century BC. Uh, governments would reduce the amount of silver in the coins. Uh, redu- thus reducing their value. And largely they would do this to, as a profit-making venture. Largely they would do this as a way to finance the government. And the, and the, and the, and the analog today is, is a central bank, you know, just straight up printing money to pay the government's bills, which mm-hmm. we're getting rather close to recently. Um, but that was really not what happened during most of the 20th century. During the 20th century, we had a kind of a different model, which was the macroeconomic manipulation model we were we were fooling with the currency to reduce unemployment or i don't know fool with the macro economy in some way um so in in the end in the end uh it does it's not it's not really a very good way of facilitating uh debts and deficits actually you know Bonds are the most popular when they're denominated in a highly reliable currency, and the, and the countries would have very poor currency quality. You can't issue debt at all. <laughs> so, so it's it's it, there's there's some slogans which are not don't quite line up with reality. Mm-hmm. But what 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 definitely what definitely is a pattern is that we've seen since the floating fiat currency uh, era began in 1971, essentially, is until 1971. When currencies were basically based on gold and the Bretton Woods system and, and all the other gold standard systems that preceded Bretton Woods, governments kind of knew, whether it be a monarchy or it be a parliament, Congress, they kind of knew that they had to really actually pay the money back, right? Mm-hmm. The money in the future was going to be the worth the same as the money in the past. And they were pretty disciplined. Uh and as soon as that was taken away, as soon as people understood that it was all funny money and in extremists, you could just print the stuff and pay your bills or, or its value in the future would be substantially less than, than it is today. All of a sudden, the uh, governments that had in previous decades been pretty run pretty well balanced budgets, they started to run chronic deficits and, and debt to GDP level which had always fallen time then began to grow in peacetime and so there's there's definitely been a an erosion of, of fiscal discipline that has accompanied the erosion of the value of our currencies it's kind of all been swirling down the toilet together over mm-hmm. the long slow period um, so and we're kind of coming to the denouement of that period all, all those all those assumptions from the 80s and the 90s that we were all just going to print the money in the, in the end anyway well that's kind of coming close to reality now <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah we hear a lot of <clears throat> about that from uh the modern monetary theorists you know, mmt um but i think um people don't uh, they might have heard about mnt before but they uh might not know what it is so what is mmt and, and what's the, the big push 
uh, for this, and <laughs> why does it, uh, and why does it have, uh, you know, uh, tie into this, uh, uh, this uh, topic of inflation? Yes, um, the the idea that you can, you know, print paper bills and, and pay pay the government's bills with this is very old. Chinese were doing it a thousand years ago. Uh, and the, you, the American colonies before the United States were doing it 300 years ago. Uh, so it's a very common notion. And Common notion and, with a new name, basically. It's a common notion with a new name. And, and uh, it arises from the fact that in our, you know, now most of our currency is electronic, but we still sort of have a paper currency. Um, you, the, the government, uh, Federal Reserve, Central Bank, we'll just say that's part of the government. Uh, it, you do have to create the money. The money has to come from somewhere. The central bank is going to have to create money or it won't exist. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. <laughs> and, in, and in general, it has to create more and more money because as the economy grows and, and people get wealthier, it, it, they, it requires more money to undertake regular processes of commerce. And the central bank's role back to 1913, the Federal Reserve, has been create enough money, but not too much, and they don't do a very good job of that. But that's kind of their that's kind of their uh, agenda. So the MMT guys are right in that sense that yeah, the central bank can and does create money, and and when it creates money, it essentially makes government does disappear. It essentially uses that money to finance the government if you, if you want to use those terms. It doesn't do it for the purpose of financing the government, but that is the outcome of of its regular day to day operation. Gotcha. Um, so, so that aspect, which people often don't think about very much, is, is real. Um, and it, it's been a, it's, we've been in a funny situation since 2008, since the financial crisis of 2008. And this is a uh, somewhat technical topic, which we don't really get into it in the book. But essentially, what happened in the aftermath of 2008 is there were new regulations among banks called Basel III and agreed to in Switzerland which said that banks have to hold much more of their assets in the form of cash at the Federal Reserve, deposit, bank reserve deposit at the Federal Reserve. And this was written into regulation. It was phased in over 10 years between 2010 and 2019. And it basically returned U.S. banking practice to the norms of the 1950s or the 1920s and past years, make them much more conservative and much less kind of, you know, wahoo, yahoo, because mm-hmm. they got in trouble in 2008. Well, so basically, if you think about it as a person, it's like a regulation that said you have to always have $1,000 in $20 bills in a place in your house so that if the ATM machine never shut down, you'd have some, some money to spend. Right. Well, makes sense. Not a, not a bad idea. Well, if everyone, every American kept $1,000 in $20 bills more than they already are, you're going to have to make some more bills. Right? They're going to have to exist. You just you just made a requirement for people to own these. So if they don't exist, they're going to have a problem, right? Sure. Well, then if that were the case, then the Federal Reserve or the Treasury would have to print all those bills, $1,000 per person. Makes sense, right? So that's basically what banks did. And as a consequence, although there was not, there, there was not a very much direct connection, but the result was that banks absorbed a lot of this money created that we've had since 2008 and, and there's been some inflationary consequences which we are now experiencing but not really that much mm. and so the MMT guys who don't really know anything about this bank regulation stuff they say look we've been doing this for 
in 2008. 14 years, central banks printing money like crazy, creating money like crazy, essentially funding the like crazy to the you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And there's been no real consequences. So we just proved <laughs> it. We just proved we can just print money willy-nilly, pay for all of our wish list of crazy spending projects, like trillions and trillions of dollars, and it's everything's okie-dokie. And, the, and so that's basically my, that's basically, I read Stephanie Kelton's book, cover to cover detail. Um, that's kind of the argument. And from the standpoint of a politician, it does make sense. Um, they don't know about all this bank regulation stuff. Well, the problem we have today, and one of the reasons why we want to come out with this book, is that that's done. Banks are topped up. They fulfilled all the regulatory requirements. There's no obvious need for, banks are not going to absorb any more of this money creation. Mm-hmm. And so if you if we have another round of this where we create even a re- relatively small amount of money, $500 billion, billion out of thin air, so to speak, give it to the government to spend, uh, it might have much more inflationary consequences than similar actions have had in the past. And uh, and by the time they figure that out, it'll, it'll, already, it'll already be well on its way, I put it that way. By the time we have the big debate about it and say, see, that doesn't work, it'll already be like, you know, of course, be galloping out of the barn. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, another big theme in the book is the, uh, uh, you guys call it the money illusion uh, in capital letters. Uh, what uh, What is the money illusion? Uh, <laughs> uh, why, yeah, why is money, the money illusion the money a problem? Illusion. Money illusion is a term that's actually been around for over 100 years, an economist term. And you have to understand that the principle that the United States used and every other major country used until 1971 was you wanted the currency to be as stable. And the way they achieved this was by tying the value of the currency to gold, which was also all centuries of experience that shown was pretty reliable. And so a currency was, was like weights and measures. A currency was like a foot or a meter or a second or, or a pound. It was something that was supposed to be constant and unchanging. And then, you know, so uh, $10 would always be sort of X amount of, you know, X amount of value. And $20 was always 2X today and 10 years in the future and 100 years in the future. Right. And that is kind of basically how money works. You know, gold comes out of the ground, but humans invent money and we, Invented. That's what we invented. We invented the meter, but money, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, a stable, a stable transactional device, and stable in value. And so that is, that because that's what we. That's our ideal of money. That's what we assume that money is. So we assume that when the price goes from ten dollars to twenty dollars, and the dollar doesn't change, then the value of the thing doubles. Well, the, the money illusion is that we know actually we don't have gold standard currencies. We don't have staple value currencies. We have currencies that have no fixed value. They go up and down all the time. They're floating fiat currencies. And so we assume that they're stable in value, but they're not. And like I said, 1970s, we're not just talking about 10% you know, change here. Uh, the value of the dollar, I think, fell probably 90% gigantic change in the value of the dollar. But people at the time thought that they assumed that the that the dollar was stable in value and the price, the real value of oil went from $3 to $39. It just went up 13 times. And it was all due to Arabs and, and whatnot. And they were completely confused. Mm. So that, 
that's the money illusion, and it's still very common today. Yeah. Uh, and we have to have to understand we do not have stable value currencies. Okay, great. Well, uh, you know, once inflation starts, inflation rates start ticking up like they have. Um, in the back of people's minds, there's always, uh, you know, the, the 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 boogeyman of of hyperinflation of <laughs> of our currency turning into, uh, you know, of of us having to undergo the same experiences, say, Venezuela or Weimar Germany. Um, when uh, when does inflation turn into hyperinflation and is that something we should be worried about uh, in the short term especially but in, the, in even in the long term uh, that's a good question and we do have these terms inflation and hyperinflation um, there we remember these sort of extreme blowout events where you, know, you have million percent inflation that kind of thing uh, but actually inflation or hyperinflation of a somewhat milder variety is very common. Uh, all of Latin America had hyperinflation in the 1980s. All of Eastern Europe had hyperinflation in the 1990s. And it could be, and it could be more like you know 50% or 100% per year, not you know, 10 million percent. But hyperinflation really arises uh, from a certain political process, and the political process is very simple. It's when the guy, it's when the government starts to print money in the past. To pay the bills, it's not about macroeconomic you know, manipulation. It's not about Phillips curve. It's not about unemployment or the stock market. It's just about paying the bills. And once you do that, and we did that in 2020, um, we've done it. We've kind of, sort of, we sort of, it wasn't overt, but it, it's functionally the same. And once you start doing that, uh, that creates the gigantic increases in the supply of money, which leads to gigantic declines in the value of money, you know, factors of a thousand and, mm. and so forth. And, and we are kind of drifting into that process. We, that was not, that definitely did not happen in the 1970s. That has not happened in us history since the hyperinflation of the 1780s, the continental dollar. Um, so we're not that familiar with it, but if you go South Texas, they're very familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one measure, uh, that's often touted as a way to fight uh, inflation is through uh, what's known as "quote unquote" austerity. So this combination of uh, increased taxes uh, alongside with uh, spending cuts, and then uh, you know they hike up interest rates, and then maybe also uh, currency devaluation. Uh, why uh, why is austerity not something <laughs> we should do to fight inflation? Yes, uh, we are definitely anti-Austerians. Um, <laughs> this this arises. It, it's when you explain what economists really think, it's appalling how stupid a lot of it is. Uh, now, I, as we as we as we describe as we described uh, our current situation, we have you know pretty clear supply chain, supply demand type issues, and a variety of and many many things are strangely persistent usually these things go away pretty quickly but they keep getting worse mm -hmm. well you just got to fix those right you got to take care of the baby formula thing you got to take care of the auto production thing you got to take care of you know housing product development and sort you know you, you just take care of those things 
nothing to do with central bank, nothing to do with taxes. You know, you, you didn't have a tax problem. You have a baby formula problem, <laughs> whatever, whatever the thing is, right? Yeah. Right. Your tax system was broken. That was the problem. Um, but sort of the Keynesian aggregate supply, aggregate demand model that leads economists to say, well, we have too much demand and not enough supply. So if we just get rid of some of the demand, it'll balance out. Well, how do you do that? Well, we just people have higher unemployment then people won't have as much money, and so they can't go buy stuff. And so the shortage won't matter too much. And this is, and this is actually kind of the line of thinking. It's very stupid. I mean, uh, there, I mean, there is, is actually, a, there is a, I mean, there is a logic to it. I mean, it just doesn't mean that, you know, that it's. Uh, well, you, that, can, you can see how this can be a problem. And, and, yeah, and the Federal yeah. Reserve is kind of being, kind of being hurled down this road right now. It's like, oh, we have to have really high interest rates to cool down the economy. What? Right. What does that mean? Well, it, it, on the other side, I just described, right? We had mm-hmm. this, we had a stable value policy in the past. We had the gold standard system. If I the dollars fixed to gold, they'd go up and down in value. Uh, when you have a decline in value in the currency, then you have a price adjustment process of a consequence and prices go up to respond to that new value of the currency. Well, uh, and that that's, that uh, takes place over time. So if you had a decline in the currency in the past, you're going to have upward price adjustments over, over a period of time afterwards. But if you don't want to keep going down that road, they just don't have any more declines in the value of the currency, buddy. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Just don't do that anymore. Uh, and, and maybe you can even return the currency partially or entirely back to its prior value. It's, that can be a little problematic, but it's an option. Uh, well, what does that have to do with austerity? Right? That's the value of the currency. You can do that with a healthy economy. You can do that with a terrible economy. There's nothing, you know, it's right. not directly related to the economy. It's just to fix the value of the currency. You know, don't let it go down anymore. Um, and, and unfortunately, what can happen from this kind of austerity approach is that you get a recession. Well, higher taxes, higher interest rates, you know, this theory, break, we need a recession to break the back of inflation. It's kind of talk. Isn't that a recession? Isn't that the definition of recession yeah well then what happens to the recession well don't just congress come in and say oh we want fed put we want easy money we want to spend a ton of money we want the fed to finance the, our expenditure isn't that going to create another round of inflation <laughs> right yeah and and there's a pattern and there's a pattern along those lines yeah. um uh, now I, I will say i will say that uh sometimes uh we there, there's a very long history of governments debasing the coinage, uh, creating money to pay its bills. Well, if what, the reason it has to do that is because it doesn't have tax revenue to cover its expenses, expenditures. So in that sense, yes, uh, if you eliminate deficits, if your revenue covers your expenditure, then you no longer have the need to create money to cover the expenses. So in that sense, yes. I still think higher taxes are a bad idea, but maybe reducing expenditure and that kind of uh, uh, fiscal policy would be an important part of, of not printing any more money. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're halfway to a, rece- to a recession right now, aren't we? I mean, a recession is technically two quarters of two straight quarters of uh, negative growth, right? And uh, growth in the first quarter was, I think, uh, I think they just announced it today. We're taping this on the 26th of May, uh, uh, 
was uh, uh, worse than expected. I think they're expecting like uh, negative 1.2, something like that. Actually, came into like 1.5. So, I mean, I guess we're unfortunately almost halfway to a recession, or are halfway to a recession at least. Uh, So that's not that's not real good news with that. Yes, and and um, and we we actually mentioned this in the book, right? Uh, We it's good. Very it, when things things are not real bad right now, like, mm-hmm. you don't. But if things do get real bad, which they even even a relatively mild recession, even you know, the recession two thousand two, the recession nineteen ninety one, which statistically doesn't look like a big deal, but when you are in it, it yeah. sucked, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, and and when that happens, we now have a habit of Congress just vomiting money all over the landscape and leaning hard on this central bank to help finance this with you know modern monetary theory and so forth uh i i think we'll have we have to expect it's the most probable outcome is we're going to do something like that again and that could be dramatically inflationary in my opinion well that's great (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) uh anyway but uh speaking this now uh the current situation where is now is there any way or multiple ways for uh, people out there to to stay ahead of, to preserve their assets uh, to and even to grow their assets and and sort of stay ahead of this inflation or I mean are there ways people should be um, you know rebalancing their portfolios or anything like that is there is there anything they can do people can do to stay ahead of this? Um. Well, it's, it's an interesting, interesting principle among institutional investors. All the investors always own all the assets, right? You can trade among each other. All the investors always own all the assets. Right. And so, and in, in inflationary periods, in uh, where the values of currencies decline, the, the value, market values of assets typically get, often get pulverized, as was true in the 1970s, and has true been true in other inflationary environments. So. Investors as a whole have nowhere to run. They have to own the stuff, right? Yeah. They're going to own the bonds, which might be worth much less in the future. They're going to own they're going to own the stocks, which might end up with much lower valuations than, than they have today. So to to be the one to be the guy who somehow sidesteps that is going to be you know not many people are going to be able to do that. Uh, but and also it's hard to predict the future. But mm-hmm. we we do have a chapter in we do have a chapter in uh, the book about thinking about thinking about investing in inflationary environments and and certainly think you know gold is, has always been gold the, the, the investment characteristic of gold is that it really doesn't go up and down in value well that is very interesting when there's a bull market stocks and bonds are paying a nice fat yield or uh, interest yield because uh, you know Something that doesn't go up and down in value and just sits there in the vault is not very interesting. But when everything else is going down in value because the currency is being devalued, debased, then having something that doesn't go down in value becomes very interesting. And so gold tends to do very well. It is, is sort of the short answer to that question. But to get a little more sophisticated, uh, an investor should think about, just think about if you were living in Mexico. You're a Mexican. You live in Mexico. You work in a Mexican company. You have a 401k. And the value of the Mexican peso goes from five pesos to the dollar to 50. 
that's pretty big devaluation. That's you know from ten to one. That's the nineteen seventies basically. And you think about it. You think about some other guys' currency. It's a little easier, easier to imagine. Uh, you know, what would you do in that situation? Well, you probably say, "Well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, uh, you know, open a bank account at Citibank and hold my assets in dollars." <laughs> probably what you would say, and which is what wealthy wealthy Mexican families actually do. Well, that's not an option when you are when you're an American because there's there's nowhere to go, except maybe for gold. So, but if, if you just think about that, when that happens, what happens in Mexico in terms of asset prices, in terms of commerce, in terms of property values, in terms of wages and pensions and social security, what happens? And if you, if you think about it in that way, I think a lot of answers begin to come up pretty quickly. Um, the problem is Americans are not accustomed to that. The Americans are stuck in the money illusion they think the dollar is stable and valuable, uh, and they won't really know what's happening to them. Okay. All right. Well, um, so austerity is not the answer. Uh, how how do we fight inflation? What uh, what what are the what are the steps we can take uh, at the policy level to 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 fight inflation and, and uh, get us out of this? First of all, we have all these non-monetary issues. Um, when we're thinking about it and how to do a, a good anti-inflationary policy, we have all these non-monetary issues. Many of them related to government regulation and funding government interventions. Uh, you know, we can't import baby formula. What's up with that, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, things like that. So, you know, you can't just blame big at the Fed Reserve for. And how to do that. But then, and then you have uh, central bank policy. Well, if inflation is simply a decline in the value of currency, just don't do that. <laughs> and there are two basic ways. You know, there's two basic ways. At, le- at least you know, you had you had some decline in the past, mm-hmm. and you're gonna have to you have the consequences of that. But just don't add to it. Don't make it worse. At, at the very least. Um, and there are two basic ways you could do that. You could kind of do that by the seat of your pants and kind of make it up as you go along and, and try this and try that, which is what Paul Volcker did in the 1980s. And he stabilized the value of the dollar in a very kind of clumsy, messy way, but it worked. And Greenspan followed up and he, and he was a little more successful and, and it worked. Uh, you just have to stabilize the value of the currency. And, and Greenspan and, and Volcker both did watch commodity prices and gold in their efforts to do that. Um, so that, that can happen in the context of a floating fiat currency. But what, what you also find also very commonly is that people say, you know what, forget about this. Forget about this. You know, we're a central banker guy and we're going to make stuff up. And obviously this guy's a bozo or we wouldn't be having these problems. And, and, the, gov- and, and the, the government is always, you know, is pressuring the central bank to always pay its bills. And, and, you know, their money supply keeps going up and up and up. And yeah. Just cut all that stuff out. We are just going to have a policy where we link the value of the currency to some external standard and we stabilize the value that way. And for United States and most major countries, that's always been gold. You just you have a inflationary period, uh, and then you say, okay, we goofed. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going back to gold. We're going to link the value of the currency once again to gold. So that's stabilizing. Not in a seat your pants way like Paul Volcker, but in a much more formalized and 
institutionalized way. And gold is not so common anymore. But this is actually very common today with countries around the world. More than more than 100 countries in the world don't have a floating fiat currency policy. They stabilize their currencies by linking the value of the currency to typically the dollar or the euro or some other currency. Bulgaria had terrible hyperinflation in 1997, like, you know, million percent hyperinflation. And they said, okay, no more. And they instituted a Deutsche Mark-based currency board. They linked the value of the domestic currency to the German mark, and that was the end. Hyperinflation is over. Um, Germany had hyperinflation in the early 1920s, and it was the same deal of printing money to fund the government. And they said, okay, 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 okay. We're going to have to cut this out. And they and they got a guy to do it. His name was Shaw Marshad. And they set him up at a desk at the finance ministry with one secretary. That was his whole entire staff. And on Monday, there was hyperinflation. And on Friday, they were back on the gold standard. And it was over. So that's, so, so whether you do it in an informal way like Volcker or you do it in a formalized way like Shaw Marshad in Germany in 1923 and Bulgaria in 1997, one way or the other, you have to stabilize the value of the currency. Are there any countries, like major countries uh, around the world today that are uh, that have their currency pegged to gold? Uh, no. Um, a couple reasons for that. One is it's actually expressly, explicitly forbidden in uh-huh. the IMF charter. No IMF member can link their currency to gold. Uh, the second reason is... And you're pretty much like, you know, persona non grata if you're not part of the IMF, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if there are any countries. Uh, the, the second reason, and this kind of preserves the floating fiat dollar euro hegemony. Mm-hmm. Um, the second reason is there have been some efforts to introduce gold standard currencies recently, and they kind of get uh, squashed by, uh, once again, this sort of global central bank, floating fiat central bank nexus. Uh, one example would be Muammar Gaddafi in Libya would had a, had a very had a public plan to introduce a gold-based common currency for Africa. This is 2012 or so. You could, and you could go online and look, look at his plan. And, uh, and 12 months later, he was no longer the leader of Libya because the U.S. went in with bombs and, and, and armies and stuff and, and kept got rid of Muammar Gaddafi. Well, there's actually some incriminating emails from Hillary Clinton uh, that say that, you know, Hillary Clinton was a little concerned about this Pan-African gold standard stuff and she wanted to do something about Muammar Gaddafi. So there apparently seems to be a connection between the Libyan invasion and this Pan-African gold standard uh, mm-hmm. plan. So that's so those are some interesting things to think about. You know, if the IMF sanction doesn't work, then you could just go in with the planes and the bombs. Um, and, the, and then there's one more practical reason is that if you had a, a country that did have a gold standard based currency, uh, you would have a lot of foreign exchange volatility with the dollar and the euro and the dollar block and the, and the euro block. So the, the foreign exchange rate would basically look like the dollar gold price. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's quite hard to conduct trade with that much volatility. Um, and that, that volatility essentially arises from the volatility of the dollar itself. It's not gold. Gold is stable, but because the dollar is a floating fiat currency, remember the money illusion, 
dollar is not stable, that creates this unstable exchange rate between gold and, and dollars. So to, to face that kind of volatility in trade and investment uh, is problematic. So that, that's another that's a very practical uh, reason why they tended to go towards uh, just adopting the dollar or euro as their standard. Yeah. So uh, if, as you said earlier, that you'd basically be persona non grata with the uh, IMF if you went to the gold standard. Um, is there any is that solution politically feasible at all for the United States then, or is it something like um, we would have to basically get <laughs> uh, you know all the big all the big economies in the world to uh, sort of sort of get back to like another Bretton Woods type system? Um, would we have to go that route first, or I mean, or, or uh, is that the only politically feasible way we could do it, or is there a politically feasible way to do it without? anybody else or we could just say hey we're doing this and you know tough luck and you should probably join us on a gold standard etc 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 i mean is there any way we could actually do it without having to get all these other countries to agree to it as well uh yeah well the united states certainly could because uh united states because we're the big kid thing, on the block and yeah for, for one thing there are over 40 countries that are already i just as i just mentioned linked to the dollar, so they would right. automatically be on the gold standard in the oh, United States. They, you know, there, there are about 40 countries at Bretton Woods, and we already have about 40 countries on the dollar standard today. So we would already be there. Um, and if we did it, then Europe would, you know, it would be fairly likely that they would follow along. Uh, in, in, the, in the extreme case... Uh, but would the they be very States happy about it? And, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. You know, in, in the extreme case, you know, if, if you could imagine the United States dropping out of the sort of existing globalist system and say, you know, we're just going to forget about the IMF, forget about the UN, you guys, you know, forget about data, we're, we're not going to be part of that anymore, we're going to do our own thing. Uh, yeah, you could do that too, uh, simply because we have a large military, so we don't want to have the Libya problem. <laughs> um, and also we have a pretty large economy, so we don't have as much, we, we can be more, you know, rely more on internal trade. Mm. External trade, um, uh, but in, in general, you know, there are a lot of good ideas that are politically difficult. You know, my, my co-author Steve Forbes, well known for his flat tax proposal and, and very widely appreciated among conservatives, but in political time, you know, implement that. No, no matter how good an idea it is, it hasn't been politically easy to implement. Mm -hmm. Well, um, in, in monetary affairs, there's a pretty there's a pretty simple pattern, and that and that is nothing changes until it has to. <laughs> and in 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 monetary affairs, this is when the existing system blows up and becomes completely intolerable. Tolerable. Now, an interesting example of that is for literally a hundred years, the col colonies, the states, uh, in the colonial period in the United States uh, or America, uh, had state-issued paper fiat currencies that were a variable value and they used to print them to pay the soldiers and they would have they would be very reliable and they had all these problems and Britain actually ended end up banning them because they'd done this for 100 years they had these like crapulous low-quality paper currency and eventually eventually blew up in their face completely 
in the 1780s had a terrible hyperinflation. And the colonists who had done this for 100 years, they said, okay, no more. We're going to put in the Constitution. You can't do that stuff. <laughs> and they did. They said only gold and silver coins will be legal tender. It's in Article 1. And that set the stage for almost two centuries of gold standard discipline in that stage, which was, had, mm -hmm. which was completely clean break from a colonial past, which was this horrible mess of, of silliness. So uh, if we did get in a situation where we started to pay for the Green New Deal by printing money and it turned out to be a big disaster, eventually there will be need to find a different solution. And, and that's an important Americans understand. Uh, you want to have blueprints in your mind of what to do if the full opportunity presents itself. And we, on the tax side, we have things like the flat tax or the fair tax or some other interesting tax proposals, Herman Cain's nine plan. All very good ideas. Maybe we can expect them at some time. I, I, I encourage Americans to understand that we had a gold standard system in the United States for almost two centuries. 1989 and two things happened. We became the wealthiest country in the history of the world, the broadest, most prosperous middle class in the history of the world and the history of the world since 1971. And uh, as long as we stuck to that principle, we never had an inflation problem. So if that's what you want. You want to be super wealthy with no inflation. You know what to do. <laughs> and we might get a chance to do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I think that uh, we've, on uh, already about an hour now. Wow. Um, so I think that might be a satisfactory answer to uh, my next question, but I'll just ask it uh, um, just because it's something I ask pretty much everybody that comes on here. But uh, um, so what what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's the one thing you'd want uh, a reader to take away from reading it? I think there are two points, basically. First is the, the monetary type of inflation, not not the you know, stuff, but the, the monetary type of inflation is really easy to understand. The floating fiat currency that goes up and down in value, sometimes it goes down in value, and when that happens, prices adjust upwards. It's real simple to understand. You never hear about this from economists in newspapers, but that is the basic process. The second thing is we had a, we used to have a system that prevented this from happening. We we had a policy of keeping our value of our currency linked to gold, and as long as we did that, we didn't have an inflation problem. And we we now we have a two cent dollar. I explained you know the value of the dollar is probably one fifty of what it used to be. Mm -hmm. And and if you if you and this has all kinds of consequences, and I think you kind of understand what they are. Uh, so we. We tried it both ways. We did it the right way. We did it the wrong way. Uh, I suggest we go back to do it the right way again, and it's very easy to do. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, uh, before we go, is there uh, anything else you want to plug before we go? Any uh, any upcoming appearances or the or you know social media, anything like that, or the or the uh, newsletter or anything else you want to uh, mention before we go? Uh, yes, if you are in New York City, we're going to have a presentation at the Manhattan Institute uh, next week. Uh, it, apparently, it's going to be recorded for C-SPAN, so if you don't make it, maybe you'll, you'll see it there. Uh, and I, my website is newworldeconomics.com. Um, 
this is kind of my macro theory website and has a lot of economic topics in it, including my four, four other books about economics. And also, I do have a, an investment newsletter. Uh, it's a real simple thing. It's kind of aimed for the individual investor. People always ask me, well, you know, what are you doing with your money? And so this is a way to <laughs> people do ask that. And, and this is a way to answer them. And it's on Substack and uh, it doesn't cost much. So hopefully it'll be worthwhile. All right. Great. Cool. Uh, well, again, uh, the book is Inflation, what it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it. Uh, highly recommend it to anybody out there who needs, uh, you know, might not know anything about inflation or might know just a little bit about inflation. This is a really, uh, really great little primer on, again, what inflation is, why the problem is uh, very pernicious, and then, again, you know, offering solutions are, you know, offering a way uh a way to handle the problem, a way out of the situation. So, uh, again, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, the authors are Steve Forbes, Elizabeth Ames, and then my guest today, Mr. Nathan Lewis. So, Mr. Lewis, again, thank you very, very much for uh, coming on the podcast and uh, discussing the book with me and talking talking inflation. Thank you. It's been fun. All right. Yeah, thanks a lot. And, uh, again, if you like this podcast, please make sure you leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast – uh, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we have our uh, Twitter account for the uh, for the uh, podcast. You can reach us out, you know, reach out to us there. Um, uh, you know, give us a follow, send us a DM if you know if you have any questions or more or information or. Anything like that, you know, reach out to us there. Our uh, Twitter handle is, well, I always forget it, it's uh, at uh, illbooks, at I-L-L books. So check that out and make sure you follow that. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So we'll uh, see you guys next time. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. Hi, Mom. Hi, Robbie. Love you both. Bye-bye. <laughs>
coffee sweet I like to smear some butter on my bread And you know I gotta have my meat When you stopped rationing You really played the game But things are going up and up and up and up and up And my check remains the same That's why I got the blues Got those inflation blues 